You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the early 2nd century, Pliny, the governor of the Roman province of Pontus and Bithynia, wrote a letter to his emperor Trajan about Christians who were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a deity. But when did early Christians begin to believe in the deity of Christ? For Orthodox Christians, this is the apostolic faith delivered to the saints. For modern critics, it is the faith developed by the saints, the end result of generations of theologizing having little to do with the original meaning of the apostolic New Testament writings. On one matter, the Orthodox and the critics today seem to agree, at least in common practice that the debate over Christ's deity is mainly fought on the narrow ground of a handful of New Testament texts, passages like the Gospel of John's Prologue or the Paeans to Christ in Colossians 1 and Philippians 2. Chris Tilling, author of Paul's Divine Christology, argues that this focus is too narrow, that in fact some of the earliest writings of the New Testament canon, the Pauline epistles, reveal throughout Paul's firm belief in Christ's deity and the ways he talks about the Christian believer's relationship to their Lord Jesus Christ. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Chris Tilling, Senior Lecturer in New Testament Studies at St. Melitus College in London, and Visiting Lecturer at King's College London, and author of Paul's Divine Christology, published this year by Erdman's. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Tilling. Thanks very much, David. Really honored to be on the program. Excellent. Well, it was a delight to read your book, and I've been looking for, to this con- forward to this conversation for a great while. Well, that's kind of you to say, thanks. Well, I think it's best to set up the significance of your book's argument by s- considering the state of the Christology conversation uh, as you're entering it in the book, so to speak. So what, in general terms, do we need to know about the developing conversation around Christology, and it's particu- particularly Christ's deity, in order to appreciate best your contribution to it? Um, well, the debate, the debate involves uh, proposals about the nature of, of Jewish faith in God, the nature of Jewish monotheism on the one hand, and on the other hand, to what extent Jesus Christ is included in, in the way Jews would have understood God or not. Um, at least that's one way of of tackling the present uh, conversation that's happening, or at least passing it and categorizing it. Almost all scholars that I engage with in the book want to say something about both of those issues. Well, three of your main interlocutors in this particular book are actually scholars who are on your side of that argument, more or less. So what have... Uh, Gordon Fee, Larry Hurtado, and Richard Bauckham, who I've generally regarded as the good guys in this fight. <laughs> um, what have they contributed to the argument for an early high Christology, and why do they, in your estimation, fall short of clinching the argument? Um, well, these guys, I mean, these are some excellent scholars, well-known scholars. Um, uh, so it's it's not um, to say that I disagree profoundly with um, with what they um, ultimately end up affirming. Mm-hmm. 
um, but um, how they get there, really. Uh, the, you know, the issue is many would read Paul's letters and say, surely Paul did not have a divine Christology. Mm-hmm. And, and by that, it's usually meant a divine Christology would be understood as a Christology which puts Jesus Christ on the divine side of the line that monotheism must draw between God and creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are plenty who would say, well, Christ is an exalted agent uh, for Paul, but no more than that. Um, you know, typical uh, uh, for these kinds of views, I, I, I outline some of the scholars in, in the book, but Jimmy Dunn would be a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he's going to point out language in Paul's letters where Christ is subordinate to to God the Father, eschatologically, that is. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, at the end, Christ hands all over all things to, to God the Father. Right. Um, the part, Second Corinthians can speak of God the Father as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ has a God. You know, they can point out all kinds of texts like this and note that a lot of the language that Paul uses to describe Jesus is the language that Second Temple Judaism, that's the Judaism around the time of, of Paul, mm-hmm. um, would have used to describe exalted intermediary figures, but not necessarily God. And so there's a case that can be made that you, it's, it's not in Paul's letters that you get a divine Christology, maybe in John's gospel, mm-hmm. but, but that comes much later because Paul's letters are the earliest uh, Christian documents that we have, chronologically speaking. Mm-hmm. So what these three scholars do, Hurtado, Borkham and, and Fee, in their own ways, is present a counter-argument to say, look, Paul's Christology is divine, although they understand that in very different terms. I think probably, um, if I were to outline Larry's, Larry Hurtado's um, uh, view, mm-hmm. it would make sense of the rest. Uh, he published a book called One God, One Law, which is going in for a third printing soon. A very important book in which he argued that um, Christ is understood in in terms of exalted intermediary figure categories, but with Jesus Christ in the early church, that uh, that that view is is transformed so that there's a sense in which Christ is is seen as beyond the way intermediary figures were seen. Um, and that, that is because Christ was included in the communal cultic worship mm. of, of, um, of the churches. And he will draw attention to evidence in Paul's letters where it seems as though Christ is being worshipped or included in the cultic worship of the church. And there's only God would be involved in, you know, would be honoured and exalted in cultic worship, mm-hmm. his, his argument is. You know, therefore, um, there's a sense in which Christ is is divine, um, but this involves then some kind of mutation uh, of Jewish monotheism in, all, in order to get there. Um, but part of, um, I mean, this is of course a very strong and influential argument, and it's not entirely original uh, to Larry Hattard. I mean, Richard Borkham published an article on this for the Anchor Bible Dictionary um, as well, mm-hmm. and a lot of the early church fathers made use of this line of thought as well, Athanasius and others. Mm-hmm. And so it's um, so it's not entirely original, but but it's very helpful the way that Larry Hurtado has has laid all of this out with his typical um, academic rigor and, and scholarly excellence. I suppose one of the the issues that I'm concerned about when I when I come across an argument like that is to what extent does it explain Paul's letters? Mm-hmm. 
You know, that's the bottom line for me. And there's not that much evidence in Paul's letters which would speak of the cultic worship of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so Jimmy Dunn, uh, well, he's written a book in response largely to Larry Hurtado in, in which he argues that, well, Christ is, is certainly um, honoured and venerated, but not necessarily worshipped the way that only the one God would be worshipped. He says the, uh, the, the, the evidence is ambiguous. Or Morris Casey, um, he's responded to, to the likes of Hurtado and others and said, look, the evidence that you're basing all of this on is sparse. You, know, you, can, you can point to Philippians chapter 2, the famous Christ hymn, which would seem to include Christ in some kind of act of worship because this is, this is hymnic material. But many of these guys will say, yeah, but it might not be a hymn uh, on the one hand. Or it's, it's not addressed to Christ, but it's about Christ. It's, not, it's, 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 a, it's directed to God, to the glory of God. You know? So there's a sense in which some will say that the argument doesn't quite do justice to the data. Of course, um, Hurtado's got his own responses to that. But um, nonetheless, I find a little weak um, on explaining Paul's texts. Um, so there's, there's Larry Hurtado and maybe Richard Borkham. I'll just do one more. Richard Borkham. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Borkham is an incredibly learned guy, you know. He's, he's, he's a brilliant man. Um, that his learning is, um, I think it's unsurpassed in, when it comes to early Christianity. And he argues, and you remember what I said at the beginning, everybody wants to say something about monotheism, mm-hmm. and everybody wants to say something about whether Christ is included in the divine identity or not. Right. Well, a lot of that language is coming from Richard Borkham. Mm-hmm. And Richard Borkham says... We need to know what the divine identity is all about. It's not what God is, but who God is. Mm. Then we can say something constructive about Jewish monotheism, and only then can we say whether Jesus is included in it or not. And for Richard Borkham, the divine identity is all about uh, relationship. Um, Particularly for Richard Borkham, it's God's relationship to the world as creator, as sovereign ruler, as the one who is worshipped and who bears the divine name. Mm. Um, and, and so he says that only, only God um, gets caught up in this mix of, of things. Um, and then he goes back to Paul's letters, and he, he looks at areas in Paul's letters where Christ seems to be described in similar terms. Christ is described as the one through whom creation came. Mm-hmm. He, he seems to be worshipped. Um, he, the, the, it speaks of the sovereignty of Christ in its own way, bears the divine name, Philippians chapter 2 again. And so he concludes that therefore Jesus is included in the divine identity. Um, There's brilliant moves here. Um, some of the shortcomings that people have pointed out, though, that his understanding of monotheism is, his understanding of Jewish monotheism may be a little bit too, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, artificial mm. it's it doesn't allow the texts themselves to speak and so you get um figures uh, like enoch in in the similitudes of enoch who or the son of man who seems to be worshipped and is on the divine throne mm-hmm. um and and this um at least richard used to describe it as as um uh, the um uh it's the one exception uh, that proves the rule um, although he's changed his mind on that um, since. But um, uh, another thing, the Logos in Philo or, mm-hmm. or some of the intermediary figures that he thinks are included in the divine identity. And it's all based on his 
on his own distinctions rather than being driven by the texts themselves. Um, and as well, you've got to ask, what purchase does all of this have on Paul's letters? Because Paul's letters aren't primarily concerned about Christ's relationship to all reality, mm-hmm. but Christ's relationship to Christians. And that's, of course, where I'm going to come in and say, here's a better way of dealing with Paul's letters. Right. Um, yeah, but anyway, there's Larry Hurtado and, and um, Richard Borkham in some. So that if you if you follow Hurtado, then you camp a lot in Philippians two. If you follow Bauckham, you camp a lot. You camp a lot in Colossians one, but there's not a lot of Paul as a whole that's uh, that's treated in that particular view. I think so. I'm when you we mentioned Philippians. I mean Philippians is a good place to. Uh, to test their arguments, and perhaps we can come back to that later, because I think when we've when we've started to approach the question of divine Christology um, through Paul's letters, rather than through some interpretive category through which we're reading Paul's letters, mm-hmm. and you know trying to make the evidence fit an external case, if we're if we're looking at patterns within Paul's letters, um, then I think things start to fall into pay, place much more profoundly. Mm. And which is why I look at the Christ relation, which I can explain. Right. Well, that's the move uh, that really uh, that that's your move in the book. That's the the, the argument that that's setting uh, setting you apart from this conversation that's had that's happened before it. Um, what we've been dealing with really are arguments from definition. Um, Bauckham's working with the. Uh, well, part of his argument is that God is creator, Christ is creator, ergo Christ is God. Uh, Hurtado working with God is worshipped, Christ is worshipped, ergo Christ is God. So the, the, they're kind of arguments from definition of what is God. So you bring in the notion of this of this relation. How does relation help us construct a more useful and, I guess, appropriate definition of God for the use in this project? For your use in this project? Um, well, I'm. I, you're right. I do look at the the category of relation. I use that as a as a as a hermeneutic, if you like. Um, I mean, I, I do a number of things with this. So those two questions that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, what 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 is it to speak of Jewish monotheism on the one hand, and is Christ understood as on the divine side of the line or not? And they're the two big questions. Now, the the first thing that could be said about relationality when it comes to Jewish monotheism is that Jewish monotheism at its heart is about the relationship between the one God of Israel and Israel. Mm. So right at the heart of of Jewish faith, the the closest thing to a creed in Second Temple Judaism is the Shema. Mm. You know, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in the Hebrew, it runs in one sentence. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and so on. It's it's all about this loving commitment to the one God of Israel, which is at the center of what it is to declare the oneness of God. Mm. Um, so I think um, I mean, this is this is fairly easy to establish. And I, I cite a number of scholars that show that this is the case uh, across uh, Old Testament theologies, as as well as the texts from the time of Paul, other texts outside of the canon, and so on. Um, and if you look across the text, what you find is that that relationship with God is described in certain ways. Um, but I get there um, after I first look at Paul's Christ language. Um, so my method 
is to begin with Paul's letters mm. and then work out from there in order to explain the pattern within Paul's letters rather than trying to find evidence within Paul's letters for a particular view that you're, you're trying to squeeze it into. I'm, I'm keeping the, the breadth of pattern across Paul's letters uh, center stage, mm. much more of an inductive study. So, so what I do is I try to show that Paul understands the Christ relation in a certain way, uh, the, the relationship between Christians and Christ. And I use as my launching pad here um, a text in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 to 10, actually. It's a really unusual passage. Paul is dealing with uh, um, uh, food offered to idols and you know, a lot of questions that wouldn't necessarily come up in you know, modern Western Christian circles. A uh, very strange argument is developed. And what he does at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 8, in fact, I might even just turn there. Um, <clears throat> in the first three verses of, of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he's really setting the scene for everything else that follows. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and he's quoting the Corinthians probably here, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And then he responds to these Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. So that Shema monotheism is right there. Mm. It's loving God. And the knowledge, the necessary knowledge is that ne about God is, is, is loving God and being known by him. So this sets up what he's going to now speak of relating to idolatry. But what he does in the rest of um, this argument, I think, at least for, for large swathes of it, is rather than speak about the relationship between the Corinthians and God, he speaks about the relationship between the Corinthians and Christ. Mm. And he describes that relationship with the language that Judaism reserved for Israel's relationship with the one God. And so this, this launches me in, I mean, particularly in, in, in 8, sinning against Christ, but then as the argument is picked up again in chapter 10, all kinds of language there that you find in the Pentateuch, uh, which relates to explicitly relates to Israel's relationship with with the one God, is related to Christ and the Church. And so then I ask, okay, so let's look at Paul's letters. Let's try and see what is the Christ relation. What 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 is the the language that Paul uses to describe the relationship between Christians and Christ? Can we see patterns here? And what we do is we find um, an awful lot of data that's used to describe the relationship between Christians and Christ. Uh, and I go through that in a very long chapter in, in my book. Yes. Um, I do feel as though I should apologize to readers for that. But I'm making a methodological point in doing that. I'm, I'm deliberately getting our noses into the text as, as much as possible. But I, I look at um, things like Paul's Christ-shaped motivations and his ultimate goals which tend to be related to christ so first thessalonians his his longing is to be with christ you find this in chapter four at the end and and also in chapter five or in philippians that it's everything is considered loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing christ jesus is lord or he would rather depart and be with Christ, even if living is, is profit. All of this relates to his certain goals and, and motivations. There's a tremendous number of expressions of Christ's devotion in Paul's letters, which transcend 
cultic devotion, mm. but include cultic devotion. And so this is this is just simply following the the, the threads and the impulses and the, and the major concerns of the letters first and foremost. Mm. This passionate uh, devotion, as well as described in, in very hot terms, if that's the right way of putting it, is described as devotion which is all-consuming. Mm. Um, and it's contrasted regularly with the kinds of things that you would often find dis contrasted with devotion to the one God, um, whether it be serving the belly, whether it be idolatry, whether it be the deceptions of Satan, all of these things are, are contrasted with Christ devotion in Paul's letters. But all of that is only one thread of things that are used to describe the Christ relation in Paul's letters, because Christ is present and active in the communities which make this relationship a reality. Mm. But Christ is present and active by the Spirit for Paul. Um, and I go through some texts which show that. Um, but then Christ is well as described as absent. So at the right hand of God in heaven, not present, but yet present by the Holy Spirit, which raises a whole host of questions, which is why as well Paul can pray to the risen Christ. I mean, it's worthwhile thinking. Christ died, was crucified in Jerusalem, and here's Paul, right the other side of, of the Roman Empire, praying to, to Jesus Christ to do stuff to these, these, these Roman cities, in these Roman cities. It's, it really takes some, some thinking about there. Paul sees Christ as active and yet absent in heaven somehow. Um, and then, um, of course, Paul prays to Christ and believes he hears Christ speak to him and uh, models that as well for the communities. Mm. This Christ is described in ways that will be very typical for the Jewish God relation as well as merciful and, and, and as, as, as gracious uh, as an avenging uh, as well, all kinds of God language is used. Now, so what, what we end up with here is a, is a pattern. And I think that Paul brings all of these things together, you see, in individual passages. Mm. These aren't just things thrown across the corners of Paul's letters. They are all intertwined in the letters profoundly. And this is what I call the pattern of Christ relation data in Paul's letters. Mm. And it's something that we need to take together as significant. We can't just take a bit out and expect it to make sense, which is what I think, say, for example, Lara Hurtado has done by focusing on, on cultic uh, devotion. That's a part of a bigger pattern in Paul's letters. Mm. And with that pattern in mind, we can then start to ask some bigger questions. Well, what is the Christological significance of all of this? For the divine Christology debate, and that I can I can go on and explain in a minute. But that's what I'm doing with the Christ relation, and perhaps in a minute I can explain why that matters for for Christology. Just to dig uh, back into some some kind of specifics about the the parallel between the the relationship of God and Israel and the relationship of Christ and the believers um, in in First Corinthians. Uh, 8, 9, and 10, which you, you've already um, alluded to to some degree. Uh, I was really interested to, to note, I really for the first time, the degree to which Paul is uh, is anchoring the believer's relationship to Christ in the, in the very same, I guess you would call them touchstones or uh, landmarks, so to speak, 
that are in Israel's relationship to God. So at the beginning of chapter 10, talking about the Exodus and the Red Sea crossing and, and, and putting Christ into that story so that uh, Israel is, is, you know, we should not tempt Christ as, uh, as Israel tempted uh, Yahweh in the wilderness or uh, in, in talking about this contrast between the worship of idols and the, and wor- the worship of Christ, or uh, in uh, the end of chapter 9 when it talks, uh, speaking about the law being under the law, and then in verse 21 of chapter 9, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that these um, these places in which Jewish monotheism are uh, most firmly anchored, the Shema, as you already, as you began this discussion with the Shema, the Exodus, um, uh, eschewing idols, God's law, that in each of these, just within these few chapters, God is, is anchoring the believer's relationship to Christ in these. And I, I had never noted until you had until I was reading this book and you'd gotten me thinking along these paths and we're talking through these texts, I'd never noted the degree to which Paul is methodically laying our relationship to Christ on top of the pattern of uh, God's relationship to Israel. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, yeah, I think I think the, yeah, I mean, that's so there you've started speaking about the relation between God and Israel and that pattern, mm-hmm. which is actually quite significant because once I've looked at the Christ relation in Paul's letters, mm-hmm. I can then ask, to what extent does this reflect the Jewish God relation? Mm. And that is, of course, a very important point for me asking Christological questions. Does this give us uh, a way of, of understanding the debate in Christology? Is Christ included on the divine side of the line or not? Mm. Um, and, and that's uh, where I would come in with the originality in my book in, in power, I think. So is, is Paul doing this? Um, is Paul doing this on purpose, do you think? Or is it such a such a powerful assumption of the faith he already has that he's assuming the Corinthians are just going to track with him on this? Oh, it's it's really very difficult to to peer into Paul's intentions, because ultimately all we have are our texts. Mm-hmm. But um but we can certainly see that Paul explicitly um, draws on Jewish God language to describe the relation between uh, Christ and, and Christians. And there's a sense in which he does this very naturally, and he does it all the time. Mm. I mean, you, the, one of the things I want to highlight in my book is when we start to look at Paul's Christ relation, we will find it in almost every single chapter of every letter. Mm. You know, it's it's the heartbeat of Paul's letters. And so it, it comes so naturally and flows so um, profoundly from Paul's pen all over the place. Um, and that does raise a number of questions. And I think it also reflects his missionary preaching, the emphasis of his missionary preaching as it relates to the the deliverance which Christ wins for us in the power of the Spirit because of the love of God. But Mm. That would take me a little bit beyond what I do in Paul's Divine Christology and um, and into other things. Mm. Um, but I think what, what's worth while saying now is, you know, why then does this mean something for the Divine Christology debate? Uh, 
does this solve some of the debates that are going on at the moment in academia, you know, between Jimmy Dunn and Larry Hurtado and Morris Casey on the one hand or, or Richard Borkham? And, and I think it does uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, this Christ relation pattern as a pattern corresponds only to the relationship uh, between Israel and Israel's one God. Mm. So that's, that's the first point I'd want to make. But also the second point, this is Christological data as well. So I make a case in the book that Paul's way of knowing was relational. Now that's slightly reductionist because there's lots of other ways that Paul knows. Right. But when it comes to uh, uh, speaking of the oneness of God, it is to be in committed relationship with the one God of Israel. To know is to be in relationship. Um, at least that's a, a part of, of Paul's epistemology, his way of knowing. Mm -hmm. um, that means his Christ relation is a Christology. It is a way of knowing. So we're really doing, dealing with Christology when we're looking at this data. And what I do is, is I do something a little cheeky in the book, which was, was a little bit of fun, actually, to, to come up with this, this thought experiment. You see, many will try to say, okay, so there's a certain sense in which Paul's Christ language looks like God language, but there's all of this other material mm. where intermediary angels, intermediary figures are described, and, and that looks like Paul's Christ language as well. And so those who want to deny a divine Christology will tend to emphasize the latter. They will go to the similitudes of Enoch, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, where you've got this, this son of man figure who seems to be worshipped sitting on the throne. Or, or they will go to um, uh, Sirach, or they will go to the life of Adam and Eve, um, where um, Satan is uh, uh, jealous because God commands um, that Adam be worshipped. And so, you know, many people will start to say, ah, okay, so you can have figures that are worshipped, uh, but they're not necessarily God. And that, then, is the hermeneutic for us to understand Paul's Christology. Mm. In other words, it's he's like God, but not fully God. You know, we, we, you know, clearly it's not God, not God the Father. That's a, It's later tradition, later Christian tradition, which which can include Christ in, in what we know to be God. But what I do, it, I, I, I let go of all of the most important texts that could have built up my case. The, the entire Old Testament... The, you know, the Pentateuch and the Shema and all of those things that Paul refers to. And I say, imagine that Paul had only those difficult texts. Mm. So um, uh, chapters from Sirach, the life of Adam and Eve and the similitudes of Enoch. Let's say he had only those chapters in front of him when he was developing his understanding of Christ. So in other words, I want to take the ball by the horns here. And what I do, what I see is that if you look at the way God is spoken of in those texts, that is the pattern that corresponds to the Pauline Christ relation. And, and, and it's, it's really unavoidable, that argument, as far as I can see. Now, the, the intermediary figures that are mentioned in those texts, like Enoch, like um, Adam and many other uh, figures, um, they, they, they overlap with a bit here and a bit there in Paul's Christ relation language, but by far and away, the most profound overlap comes with the God relation mm. uh, talk in, in those texts. And so the deduction follows from all of this 
that if if the Christ relation, relational epistemology, if that is a way of knowing, is a Christology, then in light of the fact that in, in Judaism it corresponds only to the relation between Israel and the one God, then we must deduct a divine Christology. Mm. That is to say that for Paul, um, a, a very Jewish way of knowing God, this relational way, is precisely the way we can understand the divine Christology uh, that Paul espouses in almost every chapter of his letters. It's the fiber, it's the, uh, the heartbeat of almost every chapter that we find. So we could say that Christ is included on the divine side of the line, but that makes it a little bit too mathematical. It's true, I think. Um, but for Paul, the Christ relation corresponds only to the God relation, mm. and that is a divine Christology for Paul. Um, so that's that's where I come to um, via looking at some other Second Temple texts. I really enjoyed that bit. Um, in in some of my studies, uh, I, I I've had to delve into uh, Enoch and some of the other um, sort of pseudepigrapha or uh, apocryphal sources in that in that area. So uh, it, it was it was fascinating to read through that and see your treatment of. Uh, what have sometimes been held up as the the paradigms we ought to be looking at to say you know to say that you know when you're looking at uh the exalted enoch on a throne uh, you're not paying attention to the way the similitudes of enoch talks about um the one creator god of heaven and earth yeah yeah exactly and and it and it all comes from that methodological shift we started with paul's letters and and you know, if we, if we begin with, with Enoch, we, we will find points of overlap between the Son of Man and Christ in Paul's letters. Uh, but once we've got the pattern of evidence in Paul's letters at, at, you know, at the forefront of our minds, then the significance of that overlap can be better adjudicated. Mm. And, and it also allows us as well to start thinking in uh, proto-Trinitarian terms. Now, of course, many will say, well, that is completely anachronistic, and it took the church hundreds of years in order to to develop um, Christian, uh, sorry, Trinitarian dogma. And of, and of course, that is right. But once we keep Paul's letters center stage, I think it becomes very clear that those Trinitarian categories are very helpful categories for understanding what Paul is doing. Mm. As I mentioned, the, the Christ relation pattern is, is one that is known by the Holy Spirit, um, so I, I actually make moves towards a proto-Trinitarianism mm. in, in, in this argument as well, although I don't draw that out in, in too much depth. Mm. Um, somebody else who's done that in, um, very helpfully recently is, is Wesley Hill, and I think he's going to be on your program soon. Is, is that right? Uh, he, he was. He already was. Uh, back. Yeah, yeah, back in the spring, actually. Um, the, oh, see, this is the wonderful thing. You know, side note, dear listeners, um, I was reading... Uh, your Paul's Divine Christology at the same time I was working through Wesley Hill's um, uh, Paul and the Trinity. And uh, both of you are asking uh, both of you are asking the question what relationship uh, what does relationship tell us about uh, the person of Christ uh, in the Pauline letters, and you, your book was focusing on the the relationship between Christ and the believer, 
and uh, Wesley Hills was focusing on the relationship between Christ and God and Christ and the Spirit. And I kept seeing, I, I kept seeing the two projects overlapping in 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 amazing ways that I had no one to talk to about. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it 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 delights me to 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 see you taking it there because um, back in oh I guess it was April or May. Um, uh, I, I, w- I was going there and was wondering whether or not I was I was making the right kinds of connections, and it, it, it seems like you've confirmed that. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. Excellent. Um, in your book, you focus uh, exclusively on uh, Pauline epistles, in particular the undisputed Pauline epistles. Um, I know that this isn't a strange move in the discipline of biblical studies, and... Uh, so I'm I'm I don't want to make too much out of that. I'm not expecting you to, you know, suddenly do the job of a systematician <laughs> when you're when you're setting out to do um, biblical studies work. But still, I kept wondering about this this pattern of analysis of looking at the Christ relation, and it seemed to be so fruitful as you were digging it into Paul and in you know those enormous chapters six and seven. Um, which, you know, dear listener, they are enormous, and he did apologize for that. But they're really, really good. <laughs> so, you know, they're worth it. Anyway, I kept wondering what that pattern of analysis would yield if it was applied um, to uh, the rest of the Pauline canon um, to, or, and to the rest of the New Testament. So... Uh, I know that it's asking you to speculate beyond the boundaries of your project, but um, do you think it would be fruitful to pursue a a Christ relation in the pastoral epistles or a Christ relation in the Gospel of Mark or the Epistle of James, that sort of thing? Yeah, um, I I have. Uh, I mean, certainly in in the disputed Pauline letters, I'm now published an article where I look at Ephesians mm-hmm. um, in this light. And but what you find in the rest of the disputed letters is is pretty much exactly the same kind of pattern mm. used to describe uh, the Christ relation in the undisputed letters. Mm. I, I make the, the distinction between, between disputed and undisputed, as you, as you know. It isn't controversial in biblical studies. It's just it's playing the game. It's, that's the politics. You, you, don't, you don't base an argument on 1st on and 2nd Timothy... Uh, and, and claim to call that Pauline, unless you've done a lot of uh, argue, you know, you've provided a lot of arguments for uh, for validating it as Pauline. Precisely. Um, so you know, it's. Uh, but certainly, I find that the the disputed letters say pretty much exactly the same. Mm. When you go across the rest of the New Testament, now the, the texts they're trying to do different things. You know, the Gospels aren't letters. Uh, they they are uh, they're a different genre. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, certainly in in Luke, uh, uh, to a certain extent in in Matthew, um, uh, and and in John as well, this kind of analysis um, is reasonably fruitful, I think, and certainly something I'll turn my attention to in future publications. Mm. Not necessarily so much with James. Um, James doesn't speak too often about jesus christ in in his epistle there's a couple of verses but there wouldn't be enough for me to build up an argument about Mm. pattern or anything like that 
but elsewhere with the with the epistles the petrines or or, or even revelation that you get a lot of uh, textual purchase by looking at those texts in like the Christ relation for the simple reason that these are written to churches and they are all about these community you know, Christians relating communally to to the risen Lord mm-hmm. you know that is their concern and so it's no surprise that uh, you're going to find a lot of information in those texts uh, relating to the Christ relation mm-hmm. and it all I think goes in very much the same direction uh, that I have argued uh, is the case for the earliest layer, namely Paul's undisputed letters. Well, uh, I love uh, I love this way of reading. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's well, you've, you've demonstrated its usefulness um, within the scope of the books that you uh, that you looked at within this particular study. Um, and uh, whether it's you, whether it's other scholars who 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 take up the method of reading and and you know go go back to other books, um, I, I'd love to see more done with it. Um, you know, because uh, you know, I'm I, I'm also thinking not just of not just of biblical study scholarship or the repercussions this has on systematics, but also, um, frankly, it preaches. And you know, if if theology, if biblical studies is not also being done for the church, um, <laughs> I see there's no reason to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think so. I mean, this is um, one of the things that I found really enjoyable about doing this, uh, doing my work, doing writing this book, is that you you're you're confronted with a Christology which isn't out there and over there and years ago geographically and chronologically distant from us simply Um, for Paul Christology is about our communal relation with the risen Lord Mm -hmm. And, and that means if we want our Christology to be orthodox Christology we can't just tick boxes. Mm. It's about it's about the way we live and love and relate as a community today, and and that raises a number of questions about the uh, the appropriateness of thinking of Christology in, in Paul as something that is only in the past. Mm. Um, it actually reaches beyond that to to our own lives. Uh, as well, I think. And that's not to say, though, that Christology is then all about the purity of our devotion to Christ, because that would be um, semi-Pelagianism that would lead us into an awful lot of anxiety, because frankly, we're all pretty crap at this discipleship business. (laughs) I I think what it ends up showing us is that this Christology um, is one in which God shows his unconditional love, you know, Romans 5. Mm. Um, so the whole thing, as you say, is it is wonderfully preachable in a way that liberates us from ourselves and our own preoccupations with ourselves into that freeing discipleship with Jesus Christ. Mm. And, and wonderfully practical in, in in the terms in the terms you've set. Um, if it, among Orthodox Christians for whom uh, the deity of Christ is is a given. Um, I've uh, I've been in you know been in Sunday school classes, heard sermons where Christ's deity is, um, in some sense, taken for granted, and and that was a big issue that we talked about, you know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hundred years ago. But that got settled, and now let's talk about more practical things. But if it's embedded already 
in in our our ongoing relationship to Christ and the ways that you say uh, Christology and divine Christology is always practical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, it's a really nice way of putting it. It's yeah, you're dead right. I mean, very often we default, don't we, into a sort of theological uh, malaise, a therapeutic deism, as it's as Chris Smith once put it, mm. where God is. God is there, and we do the right things, then God will bless us and, and, and keep us happy, but we better not sin or, or you know, and so on. But what we find in this way of thinking theologically is something profoundly close, close to our, our own lives and our own passions and our, and our own relationships, something that's very difficult to, to just dismiss in terms of, of, uh, of distance. Mm. It's about discipleship. Christology at its heart, at its warp and woof in a Pauline way, is discipleship. Mm. That's awesome. Well, we have covered all the all the points that I wanted to get to, um, but not nearly done uh, justice to the degree of detail as we've as we suggested in the in the book. But I see that we're nearing uh, nearing the end of our hour, and. At the end of these interviews, sir, we always, uh, uh, in Profiles interviews, we turn over the helm. We surrender the reins to our guests (laughs) Um, and let you have the last word. What would you like to say? Uh, What would you like to have to be the, the last thing that our listeners hear, the things that our listeners are left with, so to speak, to, to gnaw on? Uh, What would you like to leave them with at the end of this, uh, what's been for me a really great conversation well thanks uh, david goodness that's put me on the spot um you know <laughs> it's um what i've done in my book is just a small part of of what is going on in the universe that is paul's theology um you know i'd be delighted if if i were to hear of people you know going back and rereading the letters with a with a new set of expectation that they're going to understand something new um, and uh, but I'm just doing a very small thing. So much more could be said about Paul's Christology, for I don't speak much about the significance of, of the Christ-Adam parallel. Mm. Um, and, uh, and other scholars will, who I will disagree with on, on certain details um, would, would go into that. Da- Daniel Kirk, I think, he, he was on your program once. Is that right? Uh, um. If if so, it was not I that interviewed him. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, um, but he 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 writes very powerfully um, um, on on that particular aspect. Um, so there's so much more to explore. And and one of the things that I hope that my book will will give give those uh, readers of Paul the courage to do is to think in Trinitarian terms when reading Paul's letters. Mm. And what we find. Romans 5 to 8 is a classic text. We find the love of God, the unconditional love of God, um, which, which, which sends Jesus Christ into our world. And he assumes our enslaved Adamic nature. Um, and come, going to the cross, he terminates that Adamic and enslaved nature. Mm. So in resurrection from the dead, by the power of the Spirit, he, he is pronounced as, as the one who defeats death, sin, and, and evil. And we are included in that triune story by the Holy Spirit so that our death to sin is his death to the power of sin. Mm. And our life is his resurrection life. Now, this this story, which I think is Paul's gospel, is profoundly Trinitarian at its heart. 
and something that truly is something that we can worship God for, I think. So that was what, that would be my parting thought. Excellent. Really excellent. Well, I want to thank you for coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles, uh, Dr. Tilling. Uh, as I said, this has been a great deal of fun for me. I enjoyed the book, and I'm, I'm glad it finally worked out for us to be able to have a conversation about it. Well, dear listeners, that's all we have time for. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, you can post them in the comments uh, for the show notes for this episode when they post on our blog, christianhumanist.org. You can also email them to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or post them on our Facebook page as well. The book that we've been discussing, Chris Tilling's Paul's Divine Christology, published by Erdman's, will be... uh, is available now, and we will link uh, to Erdman's page for that in our show notes, and I encourage you to check it out. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles. <laughs>